It's Thursday, August 17th, 2017, and you're listening to episode 454 of Fear the Boot, a show about tabletop role-playing games and a little bit more. Running time for this episode is for It's Thursday. Welcome to Fear the Boot. My name is Dan. This is Brodor. And this is Wayne. No announcements, so let's get straight into it. First up for today, you ever had something where you kind of know it on some level to be true, but there's a moment where your mind fully realizes. You have that moment of epiphany, you know, where it all just sort of comes together and you suddenly realize, like, for example, I put on my pants left leg first all the time. Don't know why. Never something I set out to do, but it's just habit, right? I knew this on some level, but I didn't realize it until I actually started thinking about it, like what feels most natural. It actually feels completely unnatural to put on my pants the right leg first. So I started on the left leg. So my moment with this, with role-playing games, was last night playing D&D 5e with Johnny G Game Mastering. And we were sitting there going through a combat encounter, and we were trying to come up with the rules for a couple different things. Is there a penalty or a bonus or something like that for shooting a ranged weapon into melee, like there was in 3.x? which includes, you know, D&D 3 and then also good old Math Finder. And another one that I was looking up while I was uh, waiting on my turn is, are the rules for flanking? Well, there are for rogues, but not in general, right? Yeah, you simply get advantage. Yeah, yeah even yeah. when you try to level up, right? I love how simple that system is, too. Advantage and disadvantage instead of all of the different numbers adjusting. Yeah, right, and that's what I'm getting to. But I was uh, doing a level up. And the level up chart's so simple. You have a base proficiency bonus that more or less applies across the board. They flatten the math a lot down where the top of the AC scale, for example, the armor scale is much lower than it used to be. And the math is real simple. You just pick a couple new spells if you're a spellcasting class. You put in whatever your level up perk is. And that's it. You don't have to adjust your saving throws. You don't have all this other nonsense mm-hmm. to do. And John's being a dick and actually making us roll hit points. And you have a D12 and roll a two, and he makes you keep that. So I'm just going with the alternate rule, the the ap- fixed hit point chart, yeah, period. That's what I'm yeah. using is because it's like, no. I, I refuse to have a fucking wizard that has more hit points than the party barbarian or fighter. Yeah, I refuse. And, <laughs> yeah, and I've seen it dice-wise where they did straight above the table rolling seven levels in. That's true where the freaking wizard's running around with more hit points than the fighter. It's ridiculous, which is why when I run it, I always do half and half. So if your your hit die is a 10, right, I give you 5, and you roll a d6, ignore a 6. So it's basically 5 plus d5. So I always try to keep you... Is there some variance, right? That's hellaciously generous. Yes, but I always... <laughs> there's some variance, right? There's some randomness to it. But I always guarantee you're at least somewhere above the average, right? I, I don't want this to be a and d wank, but... I do max hit points at first through third level and then half at even levels and half plus one at odd levels. Okay. I use the chart. Yeah. At least for Pathfinder, that's what I always did was I used the chart because I don't want to do the rolling for it because right. you all know how I roll. Yeah. Oh, believe me. We know from the Skies of Glass <laughs> well, game. Dude. We I, know. Like last last guy's a glass game. I was mad because you must have looked at my dice. Yeah. <laughs> which is which is why I'm gonna buy a, a sage smudge stick that we're gonna wave in the space between Brodor and Wayne 
to like clean, <laughs> cleanse that dark energy, right? That negative energy. We're going to give Wayne some like hematite to like ground him out. So like the house is haunted, but at least the dice work. I, I'm just saying, since Chad's not here tonight, before I leave, I'm going to go take his dice and rub them against my. Nice. I, I, I totally support this. All right. I'm going to put them on my mouth when you're done. But, but here's the thing that I realized last night is that having such light rules was somewhat liberating, but not in the way that I normally talk about light rules being liberating, right? I'm not talking about, well, it's less to learn or I'm too old for this, which I have talked about in the past, but that's not what I'm talking about. What I mean is that in Pathfinder, I always, on 3X as well, 3035, Mm -hmm. I always felt this cloud of fear that hovered over me. And that fear was that, especially once we start moving past the base books, there is a lot to know. And if you're not doing it right, there are these combos, there are these, we take this feat plus this and that and the other and use this weapon, and all of a sudden it stacks up. Instead of the plus three you were getting, now you get a plus ten. And I always had this cloud of fear that I didn't know the game well enough to make those chess moves. Yep. In fact, Chad admits that for one of the games that he was on versus planner GMing, that he had somebody on our forums who knew three five or something like that inside now min max his character, and he rolled out this mechanical god. Of course, Chad being Chad, he didn't know how to actually utilize oh, yeah. it. He's done that multiple times. He's done it as GM and as player. Right. Reach but for help. there's always this kind of nagging fear. And what I realize is not an issue of, well, less rules means easier to learn or anything like that, because D&D 5 is still a fairly thick book. But what I realized is that suddenly I'm no longer under this cloud of fear that I'm not doing the most optimal thing because I don't know the game inside and out like that. Yeah. What I want when I'm leveling a character is I want to be able to get to that level, see what options I have based on what I've been doing or what I think is cool. What you're talking about is when you go back to like Pathfinder or 3.5, I essentially sit down and plan out all of my levels feet-wise. Oh, absolutely. Because if you don't take these two feats, you can't take this one at this level. You only get feet so many levels. And I have to plan out the character's entire life before I've ever played the character. Yeah, And, this and I don't pl- want to do that. And this plus this stacks to technically allow you to kind of slip through a loophole in the rules and, and do this other thing. And you know, I'm and not, I still love Pathfinder though. I, you know, I do. Amen. I, I'm not, I'm not, let me be very clear here. I'm not bashing three Oh three, five or Pathfinder, right? I'm, I'm not bashing them. I've had a ton of fun with them. If you threw a three X game in front of me right now, I would still have fun with it. But all I'm saying is that I notice that there is a certain freedom when you take away certain rules and you take away certain options, you suddenly lose a fear that you're making the wrong choice because the choices are so much simpler. And you still have a moderating factor, right? You still have something that describes the path of the game moving forward. But that thing is now the game master. It's not the rules themselves. And I suppose for a really super tactical kind of playthrough of D&D, 
maybe it does make a lot of sense to go more the Pathfinder route. Well, and I've heard the argument before that games that have less options, you end up with same-ish type characters. Yes. I find the opposite to be true with games where you have to have all of these building blocks to take what you want. That's where I start to see the same character over and over and over again. Sure, because if you do this build, once again, you end up with the plus eight instead of the plus five. Right. It becomes where you have a requisite optimum build and you're playing something like World of Warcraft and you've got some fucking douche nozzle and some raid railing on you for playing the character you want to play as opposed to playing the optimum build. It's funny you say that because World of Warcraft is what I was going to go to. When I was playing World of Warcraft, I remember sitting down with the build calculators where you would plan out your feats or whatever they were called in advance to see what it would get you. And now I blame this not on the game, but on the players. Yes, there were bad builds and yes, there were good builds, but notice the the plurality there, right? There, There was a multiplicity of good and bad builds. And I remember having brief encounters, but more than that, hearing horror stories, because I tend to only run with people I know, but hearing those horror stories about how people would go on a raid, and because they were not a class that had this one build and this one set of gear, and they were not min-max for this, that the raid leader would kick them in favor of somebody who was playing using what in that game they called theory craft to, well, you know, we've looked at it in the, the output, and this is three percent or less you know some some ridiculously small number more optimal than the build you're playing and so you can't play that one thing i liked about city of heroes was that once they introduced the respec options then you could take whatever you want and if it doesn't work out you respec and then you're planning it from the beginning but you can do what you want early level maybe it's not going to be effective late level because that's a big thing is A lot of times the things that I want to do make the game a lot more fun for me at low level and end up making me feel ineffective at high level. Yes. Same thing, whether it's an MMO or a role-playing game, that always seems to be the case. It's a lot more fun at low level, but I miss the building blocks I need for high level. So that's why I like the ability to just respec, but I don't think I want that in a role-playing game. I don't no. want to go back and just redo my whole character well, a lot because of, I'm building a narrative. Well, yeah, one, you're building a narrative. But in my experience, a lot of game masters, they might let you get away with that once. But mm-hmm. it's not going to be like every level would be like, you know, I know I took the spell and cast it, but it's really not. It doesn't appear to be what I need. Can I just drop it and change it to this? And, you know, some game masters are fairly forgiving with that, but many aren't. Many are, you know, it, it's kind of the chess rules. Once you let go of your chess piece, that move is set and you can't take it back. And so I, I just had that epiphany last night that I was sitting there looking for rules for, for this and for that and for the other, and I wasn't finding them, at least not in the main book. I don't know what's in the expansion books, but at least in the main core books, they weren't there. And at first I felt this moment of distress because it's like, well, well, I don't know how to do this stuff anymore. And then suddenly I felt this great relief of, I don't need to do this stuff anymore. Yeah, I I mean, I know I crap on 5th edition a lot from the perspective of a game master, but there are a lot of benefits, and I agree, there's a tremendous amount of liberty into it being a simpler, easier game to run. You know, and that might be why I love it so much. I've never run a 5th edition game. I've only played it. 
I've run other editions, but no. I've never run fifth. I prefer fifth edition as a player, and I really do now that I've got a few games under my belt as a player, I really do see the appeal of it. As a game master, I still have my gripes, but we don't need to tread that right. ground again. All right, so let's talk about the other thing we have on our mind. I can set this one up. Okay, go ahead. Because everyone knows, because I've talked about it many times, I like note passing. I like having some of the secrets going at the table. In our Skies of Glass game, it well, seems... Let's explain note passing, just in case anyone's new to the show. Note passing is either the GM writing a note and handing it to the like, player... I was like, went to f***ing grade school. I think they get it. Well, or, <laughs> or more likely, the player writing something out and handing it over to the GM. Yeah. Secret actions happening, or just secret messages, whatever it is, the player handing something to the GM. I find this fun. I enjoy having a little bit of it. In our current Skies of Glass game, this seemed to be happening every couple minutes. I'm exaggerating, but it really started to feel like that. It's like, okay, there's a whole part of the game I'm missing out on because Chad is still passing notes for his secret actions because of the nature of his character. So I got to the point of, it was actually frustrating to me because it does feel like at this point, you're missing out on half the fun. Yes. You know, I've had, let's take an, an example outside of role-playing games, I've had movies like that, where you watch the movie and you're like, eh, it was all right. And then you're sitting outside the movie and somebody explains to you, well, you know, if you read this book and this comic book and watch this animated short, well, you know, this was a hint at that and this was this and this was this. And so you're like, why didn't they just sell me a full experience when I bought my movie ticket? Yeah, why, George Lucas? Why didn't you give me the full experience? <laughs> well, actually, I, you know, well, let's let George Lucas off the hook for a moment. Not that he doesn't, he and his turkey neck don't deserve to be on that. But <laughs> the first Hunger Games movie. The, the, the most recent Star Wars movie. The amount of sort of like when I went to see it. And you're not talking about Rogue One. You're I'm not talk, talking about Rogue One. You're talking about, a new, you're talking about a new Hope. Yeah, no, yeah, Force, Force Awakens. Yeah, Force Awakens. Same, same film. Yeah, I got you. A New Hope Part 2. Yeah. A New Hope Redux. Right? <laughs> yeah. Force Awakens. All right. But afterwards, because there's a bunch of stuff where we were standing around outside and I was on the opposite side of this. Chad's and Chad like, broke it down. Yeah. Yeah. Chad's like, Chad broke it down. He's like, this is dumb, this is dumb, this is dumb. I'm like, actually. I went out and read a few of the random articles about that kind of set up the movie and explained those politics. And here's the relationship between the Republic and the kind of standing rebellion or whatever they call them. You know, here's exactly what the First Order is. Here's all the politics of it. And suddenly Chad's like, that's outstanding. Why was none of this in the movie? I, no, I remember that conversation because I was mad. I was like, well, that's his fucking job. As the storyteller right. to make that make sense. Yeah, exactly. And and there was stuff where, I mean, you could certainly follow the story, Force Awakens, without knowing this stuff. But you did not understand its depth or its nuance unless you had done all the side reading. Now, going back to role-playing game, in the same way, if there's a lot of note passing between the player and a GM or two players or whomever, it does certainly, I think... It, it, on the one hand, it allows a side narrative mm -hmm. to occur. It allows mystery and subterfuge to occur within okay. the party that can add a lot to the story. And this is one of the reasons I love it normally. But there comes a point where the players, or if it's player to player, the players and the GM suddenly don't have any idea what's going on in the narrative anymore. You know, yep. they're just utterly cut out of that loop. Yep. And you as the GM have to pause. 
So it gets quiet while you're reading the note. Because it's not like one or two sentences. It's like, here's a paragraph. Yeah. <laughs> and so you're having to stop, and we all just sit around the table waiting, making good recording silence. <laughs> so it's interesting because one of the things that we talked about that we discussed in that most recent episode of the AP, the one that we're discussing with all the note passing is Dan was going to do some role playing with Chad that they wanted to do on the mics, but they had the discussion whether Wayne and Eric and I should leave the table yes. so they could have the microphone. So that, yeah, this is what where it all comes around to. Right. Well, and I thought that was interesting only because we had the discussion and Wayne and I were both tracking that we know we want you guys. We're adults. We can we can appreciate yeah. the art and be spectators of role playing and play our characters with out of care with and not use yeah. out of character knowledge and not be influenced in character by the behavior or and the actions that on can, the other side of it we can be influenced to help you tell that story right yeah and well and that was the the thing that came up was it had gotten to a point where and I won't spoil this for anyone who wants to listen to the actual play but Chad had some actions that were entirely too detailed to be resolved by note. They needed to be role-played out. They needed to be given significant attention. He had done all his quests, and now he returned to, had to return to all his quest givers. Yeah, and cash him in and get his plot points. Yes. And so I asked Chad. I gave him the option. I said, we, I said, we need to role-play this out, first of all. It's too complex for a note. And secondly, I'm going to give you the option, because this has to be on mic. It's too important to the consumers of the show. They need to hear it on mic. Do you want me to do this with just you and me at the table and we send the three of them, Brodor, Wayne, and Eric upstairs to play with Play-Doh? Or do you want everyone at the table? And I thought Chad made a great choice in saying, no, they're adults. They can handle this. His real answer is, I'm fine if they're there. Let them choose. Yeah. And so it gave you guys the opportunity to be there, which, first of all, I think spoke to the respect that you guys are not going to use in-game that that metagame knowledge. You're not going to suddenly adjust the actions of your characters based on things your characters don't know. Sure, because Joe, I mean, I I can't speak for Philip, Joe trusts Lee. He just does. It's simple. Yeah. Philip has no reason to distrust him. He doesn't trust him to the level that Joe trusts because Joe is unbelievably trusting of everyone, but he doesn't distrust him. But then the other thing that that allowed for was it lets you guys in on at least some portion of that narrative. So what had previously been getting resolved via note passing and whispers and innuendo, now suddenly you guys saw as players, forget as characters, but as players you guys got to see that element of the plot. Let's go back to a movie. When you watch a movie, it is not uncommon for the scene to follow the protagonist for a while, and then it cuts to the antagonist. And the protagonist doesn't know what's occurred in this scene, but the audience does. You have third-person omniscience. Yes. And you get to be part of the story. That's why I was advocating for it so strongly on when we were recording yeah. that game. It really felt like we were missing out on a yeah. good part of the game, part of the experience, because we weren't part of the note passing. Right. Well, that's, but I wanted to be, I wanted to at least be yeah. there as an observer for the actual role yeah. play moments. And, so, and our yeah. characters are missing out on that because they should be missing out on that. Right. But we as people 
we're sure. missing the experience. And I'm not there as a game master to entertain the characters. Now, I think mm-hmm. the story should be about the characters. I think the story obviously needs to involve the characters. But my goal is to, of course, create an interactive story that entertains the players. And so that's where I need to look at is not what maximizes things for the characters, but what maximizes things for the players. And the choice to let you guys in on that, I mean, as you said, Wayne, it does nothing for the characters. Right. Now, on my Sunday night D&D game, we had the opposite experience. The game started out with me as game master passing a note to another player for information about their character and something that they needed to accomplish at the behest of someone significantly powerful to whom he owes a favor. And he reads the note and then immediately in character gets up from where he's at, goes and finds one of the other characters, one of the other players at the table, knocks on his door and then basically I'm going to tell him everything and hands him the note. Now, the two of them are going to have a role-playing moment, but they elected to not do it at the table because they felt what they were going to disclose would be not necessarily too much of a bombshell, but it wasn't going to take that much time, and they thought it would be better for the game if they did not disclose that. So then what they did, instead of passing notes to one another, they had their cell phones out and through the course of the game were occasionally texting each other. And now I was part of it. I knew that they were texting about the game, so I didn't flip the script and shoot somebody. (laughs) But, But it was really interesting to see how in a few days time I got to be part of two different sides of the same coin where it gets exposed at the table and where it does not and how each decision impacted the game so the texting reminds me of something that i saw happen once in game and this was a uh i want to say it was a call of cthulhu game but it might have been a world of darkness game either way it was a there's some some monsters and magic happening and our characters are all teenagers in high school and a couple of us came up with the idea and it was nothing that really needed to come out at table that our characters are just going to be texting each other Mm -hmm. so we had note cards and we would pass text conversations around at the end of the game we read all of them back and to let everyone hear the conversations that were happening and that was one of the things that i really liked about the most recent ap is there was one note and again no spoilers but there was one note when we were doing our post game debrief that chad tells us what is actually on the note and i was like that was cool just to be able to be part of it after the fact was fun yeah and our characters will never know what was on on it but right. we yeah, know now. To, to explain that in brief, there was an NPC who invited a portion of the party to a dinner. Oh, well, now she invited everybody, and then Chad deliberately bowed out. Yeah, oh, yeah. This, is, this is actually an inception. <laughs> because not only is Chad passing a note to Dan, Chad's character is passing a note to an NPC character in the game, and that's what's on the note that yeah. Chad is passing to Dan. And so, it's a note within a note. And so yeah, it was. And Chad passes a oh, Chad passes a note to me, declaring that his character is slipping a note to an NPC that Brodor's character is having a crisis of confidence, and so, <laughs> which is not true. And so a, a dinner occurs. Where through the whole thing, this NPC is trying to encourage him to feel powerful within his domain, but not knowing any of this context, including the lie 
that Chad's character told about Brodor's character, because as you said, he wasn't having a crisis of confidence. It was just the cover that Chad's character used to get your character away from what he was doing. Right. Which worked beautifully. I mean, it was was beautiful. And it came across as condescending and threatening, because instead of a pep talk, it sounded like a series of comments to the effect of, if you know your place, I'll let you thrive. If you step out of your place, I'll crush you. Yeah, and I was like... What the hell? Come on, man. <laughs> Which is not at all what she was trying yeah. to communicate. But it, tr- it, it it rung that way to me. Yeah. And it was beautiful the way that there was this massive misinterpretation created around the table yeah, so. over the fact that, that there was there was deceit on multiple levels. There was yeah. deceit amongst the players and there was deceit amongst the characters. So I think that's one piece of advice I have based on all the note passing I've seen happen in games is... If it doesn't break the plot at the end of a session, reveal the note, especially if it's something like this, where our characters will never know. Our characters don't ever need to know that that passed. We as players are now in on that that joke. Well, and us being part of the joke enriched the gaming experience for everyone. Well, and I think those right there are the two big questions I ask is one, is it frustrating or depriving the group writ large to not know what's on those notes does it bother them or not yeah i i very frequently at the end of a session will show the notes that i've handed to people just because i don't want that to happen i don't want it to be frustrating over time well these people are always getting notes what kind of things are on the notes i try to at the end of the session if i at all can i'll okay tell them what the note said well and then secondly the other question I'd ask is, is this a group that I can trust to handle that information without violating the game metagame barrier, right? Is this the type of group that I can trust where they can know secret information and it's not going to affect the choices that their character makes, right? They're not going to let this bleed into the game of they find out there's a monster hidden behind this corner. And so now all of a sudden they approach that particular corner with a degree of caution, they have never approached any other corner up to this point in the game. And, you know, I'm pleased to say that this this is a group of people that, even though I've only had substantial role-playing experience with two individuals, which is Chad and Wayne, with Rodor and Eric both, you know, I have enough trust in you guys to be mature human beings and mature players that when you guys said, no, we want to be here for it and we can handle this, I had no Second yes, I had no doubts there whatsoever. You know, it was merely a, a question of how do we want to do this? Because once again, the audience has to hear it. The audience is the film goer. Whoever's listening to this AP, they need to hear all sides of it. They need that that third person omniscience. But how do the players fit into that? Right. But I'm fortunate that you know I don't doubt that this is a group of people that are mature role players that are mature human beings. That have, well, <laughs> that, that have had that experience of, of game mastering, so they understand you know what it is and what it takes to put together a good narrative. Right. They're not power gaming. They're not abusing the system. And so I could let them in on that narrative without worrying that, that they'd abuse it. Yeah, see, and it's interesting because in my particular scenario, in my Sunday night game, the note that was passed, it was one, so it wasn't terribly significant. Mm-hmm. But we didn't want to share the information at the table, at least the impression that I got from the guys, is that this was 
a secret that one player had, one character had, that they are confiding into another character, and they wanted to keep that between them and not have it come out. And so I respected that. That's the whole question about these notes and the secrets. I said, I love it because I think they can do big reveals. And the big reveal isn't to shock the characters. The big reveal is to do that for the players. So there's something like, wow, that was really cool. We had a big, huge reveal in this game. <laughs> I wish there was a camera. That we as players. Yeah, I wish there was a camera at the table because the reaction to Chad's first quest turn in where Broder was leaning back from the table, and he has this thing he does where he like he like moves his hands like he like he's slamming a table with both like his palms flat, like he's banging on the table. Except he's not; he's about a foot or two off the table. But he has this reaction where he like leans back and he's like about to scream something that he never screams, and he's like fake slamming the table. And it was when he told us what he had actually done when the reveal happens. I was like. You beautiful son of a bitch. You <laughs> genius. That's terrible. And the thing is, then I start thinking about, okay, I, Joe doesn't know this, but like, what if Joe did know this? What if something like that came to light? How would I respond? Well, there, there's a truth about yeah. life. There's a truth about life that I also believe about role-playing games, or I try to act out in role-playing games, which is nobody can keep a secret forever. Right. Maybe a day, maybe two days, maybe even a year. Right. But the truth always comes out because, see, there's this immutable thing about the truth, which is the truth is the only statement that corresponds to reality. I can tell you the sky is pink with purple polka dots. But when you look up, you will eventually see a blue sky. It's the only story that sustains itself. And I realize in long history, things get lost to myth and whatever. So I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about in the short run of human relationships. It is my experience that in one form or another, people may not want to see the truth. They may not want to deal with the truth. They may intentionally ignore the truth, but somehow the truth always gets stated. And I intend to handle that in the role-playing game as well, where I'm not going to set Lee up. I'm not going to set Chad's character up. There's not going to be some moment where I force it all out, but I think it's inevitable. If you guys keep following the, the course of the plot, you are going to find out all the secrets he's been keeping and all those reactions that to this point you've been keeping at the player level mm -hmm. are going to start getting expressed at the character level. And I don't know what that means. And it's going to be interesting to find out what that means. Yeah, I can tell you, if we hadn't have had the big reveal, I would have probably started subconsciously doing things to try to find out myself. My character wouldn't be as suspicious as I as a player am. And so it's like... I can easily see myself doing things that without even realizing it to try to make those big reveals that I don't need to do now. Cause as a player, I now am in on it. I can even help him keep things going longer. No, so I think that's an excellent point. Yeah. Let me ask you that though, a little bit more broadly. Do you think that when the reveal occurs, cause up to this point, we've talked about the in character, out of character divide when the characters don't know what the players know. Do you think having some time to process this, having some time to accept this, right? Do you think that will dampen or soften the reaction your characters will have when it comes out? So when we flip the equation or, or flip the script, to use Broder's recent thing, we, we flip the script here and it comes out, will the player having adjusted to this being true affect 
the character response. I don't think so for me, because I really do think that I've resolved in my mind how Joe would respond to this revelation, whether I, Mike, knew about it or not. Do you think it's helpful? Go ahead, Wayne. So I was thinking kind of the same thing is now there's more time to think about how the character would react to it versus we're reacting at the same time as the character does. Yeah. Some of us is going to bleed over into the character. Absolutely. If, if I drop a major shock on you guys, then some amount of the player reaction is going to color the character reaction. and Which so, isn't always a bad thing, and sometimes it's fun. Yeah, it can be, but sometimes it's also not accurate because the character would not respond the same way that the player would to a revelation. They might be more infuriated, less infuriated, they might feel some different emotion than what the the player does. Yeah, so I guess in retrospect, if anything, I think for us it will be advantageous because we can think about it and respond in character and not be clouded by our own personal reactions in the moment. Right. Yeah, I think one other thing to keep in mind and deciding whether to do these reveals or not is how long is it going to take before this comes out? Because if it's going to come out at the end of a session... Keep it secret and let it come out as part of the session. But if it's like this and this is the long game. It has the potential to be. Yeah, if it has the potential to be the long game like this really does, then bring the players in. Otherwise, they're going to have a long time of getting frustrated. There have been some dice rolls and there have been some RP choices that have enabled what's going on in the note passing. If any of those had gone off the rails or go off the rails in the future, it's possible this will come out in character in the relatively near future. But Wayne, I think you are correct that this does have the potential to remain a secret, to remain at the level of note passing for a substantial Mm -hmm. period of time. And so it would add to the ongoing sense of frustration. Look, nobody likes feeling excluded. There is no human being alive who's mentally well, who likes feeling excluded and I think role-playing games are no exception. If there is a sense that there is an in-crowd and an out-crowd, even if the in-crowd consists of one or two players in the GM, nobody's going to enjoy that feeling. I mean, for one game, it's a fun little mystery. But for two games, three games, four games, now we start getting into weeks, months, however long this goes on, and you guys don't know until the end game or don't know ever, I think that, yes, that's going to create a real sense of resentment that builds up over the long term. And we're talking about the AP here, but this is not something that's been unique to the AP. Note passing has been a tradition in our group for as long as I can remember. Well, that you venture into the realm of the person that is the center of the note passing is the main character and the rest of us are merely supporting accessories to his secret. Yeah. Even outside of note passing, if we're just talking secrets, let's go back to the gnarl game. We started with a big group. It shrunk down to three of us. And then we grew again when it was three of us. My character didn't know that Pat was an elder. So gnarl and Pat had this huge secret for my character and it got really frustrating because The character isn't able to take part in a lot. There are a lot of secret conversations. The two of them have to go off and they speak in a different language. And there's a lot of things they have to just keep shielded from. So he was really off by himself a lot. It was. That that actually is one of... I wasn't the game master, obviously. But even as a player, 
that was one of my lasting regrets about yeah. the gnarled Sir William Saren game. It wasn't bad when there were more players. Yeah. It was when it got down to just the three, and I was the one that didn't know. Precisely. Well, and I know I've referenced this before, but in the Arthur C. Clarke, he, he like co-wrote or something, he produced it. The actual author, somebody else, I forget his, his name. But it was, it was a book series called Venus Prime. And in there, they reference a study by NASA, which I've talked about more than once, which is that if you put any more than two people together, politics form, which is why they have theorized that if you could get away with it, assuming you had enough redundancy and, and knowledge and whatever, that the optimal number to send on a long-term mission would be just two people because of the fact that the two people don't politic. They don't politic until there's three. Now, what they found... So I had a, uh, a worker at work, and uh, she regretted saying this immediately after she said it. We were talking about pairing people up, yeah. and we talked about, do we do groups of two or three? Her immediate answer was, definitely do two, because in a threesome, someone always gets left out. <laughs> Which and is... she immediately regretted what she said after she realized what she said, but... Not false information. It is but... true information. Right. And so... You're right, Wayne, that in a group of three, what happens is the politic forms along two parties. And so what happens is you end up with two people that socialize and one person that's out of that group. That's generally how it plays out. This is just human sociology. This is, it's not universal, but most of the time, this is how it plays out. And what happened was Sir William ended up getting cut out of a lot of the actions occurring between Narl and Sir uh, and Saren. Which, by the way, Wayne... There was yeah. one point I tried to fix this where Nara was going to take you under his wing. He's yeah. going to walk away from yeah. Sir William, or excuse me, uh, from Saren for a while. And he was going to do some adventures with yep. Sir William, and you blew him off. Yep. This was a between story arcs. Yeah, he did. And, and I. So I had decided what my character was going to do between story arcs. He had something he needed to go do. Right. And so. Dan comes to me with this offer, but he's already got something he needs to go do. Yeah. So, so Wayne kind of further excluded himself because I yeah. said, Nara, I, I realized what was going on as a player. And so I'm like, you know what? Instead of hanging out with Saren at, at the keep, I'm going to go. And I don't remember what it was, but he had some plan where he was going to kind of go off on some adventures with Sir William to try and build some connection there. And by this point, Sir William was just, bitter and sexually frustrated and blew him off and so it went right back to the gnarl and Saren show he actually was i don't think i ever told you what he really was doing when he was off he was trying to join in with the anti-elder rebellion he tried he tried to actually get in with the group oh wow that's what he was doing and why he had to be by himself for it that would have played out ugly yeah uh but you know he, i think you're right when though going back to the prior point that with the note passing it works a little differently the more people you have, because if you have a group of four or five people and there's an in crowd, so to speak, that occurs of two, that creates something immediately shared amongst the other two or three, right? However many, whatever the leftover number is, so that, that remainder, it creates something that socially as an attribute they all share, which is the fact that they're not part of the, the what appears to be the in crowd. And so they gravitate together. Look, everyone saw this in high school. People clustered at the tables in lunch by the social group they fit into. And there was always that table of the leftovers and the outcasts, which I'll 
happily or unhappily tell you I was part of, the fact that you are a social remainder, that's something you have in common with other people. And so you start to gravitate together and forms bonds based around that. But yeah, you don't get that in a smaller dynamic. When there are less people, you don't have that. And so I think it certainly did help in this game. I mean, we did end up at least revealing not everything, but you guys know a lot of what's going on now. But it did help, I think, to at least decelerate the reentry there, to ease the burn a bit, that yeah. Wayne, Brodor, and Eric were all in that out group. They were all in that, you know. Yeah. The game was an 8, running really good, really happy. The game became a 10. The rest of the story being revealed as a player is more fun to me now. Seeing what's been happening between the panels, basically. Yeah. It absolutely increased my buy-in as an audience member. Yes, very much so. Well, now when you see notes getting passed, you may not know exactly what they're about, but you as a player will have some idea. Oh, I'm going to be yeah. I'm gonna be passing notes to be like, Chad's a sucker. <laughs> <laughs> and that's you know, totally unrelated to the game. So, <laughs> I'm going to pass yeah. them over tomorrow, but like, you got a pretty mouth. <laughs> 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 All right, I think we're going to wrap this one up. What's going to announcements this episode? Nothing going on outside. Unless of we decide to crash Gen Con. Yeah, which may or may not be happening. Johnny G will be there either way. So if you want to meet up with one of us, John will be there. Brodor and I might be going up for a Saturday badgeless crash. I don't know. We haven't decided yet. Maybe. We'll just leave it at that. So thank you guys for tuning in. Have a great week and excellent games, and we will catch you next time. This has been a production of Fear the Boot, copyright 2017. Listeners are free to use this episode in any non-commercial endeavor so long as credit is provided to feartheboot.com. You can find previous episodes and other resources at feartheboot.com. Fear the Boot is also a member of the RPG Academy network of shows. You can find other great shows in this network at therpgacademy.com slash network.